It's uh, good to be here, and uh, I hope you're enjoying your journey with Jesus as you walk, pursue him, lean into him. When we sing our, some of the songs that we sing, it feels Jesus feels warm and fuzzy sometimes, except when I read some of his teachings and I go, sometimes you feel like a velvet brick, <laughs> velvet-covered brick. <laughs> He's very pointed. But that's good because sometimes you need to get woken up. And, what, and as we go into the Sermon on the Mount, I see it as his, as I said in the description in the bulletin, his uh, magnum opus, the essence of everything who he is and what he calls people to. And yet, at the same time, there's something about him that is so attractive. That's why we worship. Um, the, I just want to mention there's two books that I'm pulling from primarily a lot from The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. Uh, again, I would say that's recommended reading for, for all followers of Jesus. I remember back in 98 or 99, it was when we had a national gathering here in Cambridge, and uh, the keynote speaker for the conference was uh, Don Williams. And um, I remember Don in the morning on one of the morning sessions, he stood up there with two of these two books in his hand, and he said, that's what he said, he said, something like to the effect of, as followers of Jesus, there's two books we need to carry with us at all times. One is the Bible, and this other one is the Divine Conspiracy. I, like, I have huge respect for Don Williams, right? And, but for what he said about, to carry these two books, what Dallas Willard has written, and, and scriptures. Because he said, how Dallas has explained things is essential for us. And I was just, whoa. Right? It was like, wow. And I would agree, after reading it thoroughly through, I would agree. It's like a blueprint, you know, on following Jesus and the call that's been placed on us. The other book is I stumbled upon, Following the Call, Living the Sermon on the Mount Together. A compilation of various different writers from first century all the way up to today. And it's done very, very well. It's a great study book. 52 chapters, one chapter a week is the intention. The intention, though, isn't to do it by yourself. The intention is to do it with others. That's the intention with it. So there's dialogue. So, and so there's, because that's, that's when you get, when, the thing about being able to disagree with each other is you le- actually learn from each other. Because otherwise, if you just hang around with people that all agree with you, it's called groupthink. <laughs> it's not very productive. You feel good. <laughs> but it's not, it's not productive. So, all that to say, before we begin, um, I want to call us back to who we are. As a, who we are as a, as a church, but as the broader church as well. And this just came to me yesterday that I should, I should write something out. So I've, this is what I say, just a reminder of who we are as a faith community. We are a people who have encountered a God who is the source of love and the source of real life. We believe that Jesus is the full revelation of God. In other words, God in the flesh. We aim to align ourselves with the Jesus way in our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. And our identity does not come from a political party or platform. And while we are Canadian, our allegiance is to Jesus. Jesus is the one we take our cues from in life and how to live our life and how to conduct our lives. Our hope is found in Jesus. It's not in a political leader, not in a system, and it's not in any ideology as well. We aim to live our lives here on earth as we would in heaven. 
We pray that, right? We pray that. Lord, let your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. We live that. We live that out. We therefore strive to learn and follow Jesus' teachings and ways and submit ourselves to his rule and reign in our lives. And we believe this is what it means to be Christian. And we have to be reminded of that because as we go into the Sermon on the Mount, the last thing we want to do is to go through this, just read it and, and sort of what we call study it, but it doesn't impact our lives because as you recall from last week when I brought us in through what I call the back door, which is Matthew 7, 24, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus cautions that if you simply hear but don't follow, you're foolish. And it's not how we understand foolish, right? It's, it's a fairly strong word. That the call to build a wise life, to build your lives that are solid, you hear it and you follow. That's what we're called to do. So, and that's the call of a disciple of Christ. So, with that in mind, let's begin today. Sure, you are all aware, but when scripture was actually written by the different authors, they didn't put chapter headings, they didn't put chapter numbers, they didn't put verse numbers. That wasn't the intent. They just wrote out what they believed they should write. It was later on that it was broken up into chapters, and then uh, numbers were assigned to the different, what we call verses. And that is useful because then you can find a passage quickly. It's a useful tool. The downside to it is that you can tend to chunk things off and fail to read things in context. And that's something that you, you don't want to do. In fact, if you're reading any of the letters in the New Testament from the apostles, I would strongly recommend that you read it as a letter. In one sitting, read the whole thing. It doesn't take that long. And it's, it's not that much, but you'll get a totally different understanding of what the apostles were writing, what they were trying, the message they were trying to get across, and why they said everything in there. You'll also be surprised that there are interpretations we have of certain verses. You know, we'll put on our bumper stickers. That, that's not what the writer meant at all, right? It's gone off sideways, but all that to say. So with the Sermon on the Mount, typically and it's not wrong, we start in Matthew's gospel, chapter 5, verse 1. That's where we start with, if we're going to teach on the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke's gospel, it starts 6, verse 20, and it goes for the rest of the entire chapter. To start it at 6, 20 is not wrong, but that's typically where we start it. But in reality, you need to wipe out the numbers, and you need to back up into the previous chapter or chapters in some cases. Uh, because then you start to appreciate why Jesus delivered the sermon. Because <laughs> there's a reason why, why he was doing that. So if, in Matthew's case, you need to go back into Matthew 4. And you need to see what's going on there. Why Matthew records what he does. In Luke's gospel, you need to go back actually into 5 and 4 a little bit to see what Luke is laying out because Luke and Matthew are pretty similar of what Jesus is doing there. And uh, like, for instance, in Luke's gospel, you got the account of the sermon, but before that, what you read, you read things like Jesus is healing anyone and everyone who comes along, right? 
He forgives the sins of a man who didn't even ask for forgiveness, right? He didn't even ask for it. He comes across a tax collector, a Jewish tax collector, doing business at his booth and makes him a disciple. Now, you need to know, we read that and we don't even bat an eye. We think it's no big deal. Jewish religious people would have been horrified at that thought, what Jesus just did. But he stops there and he makes that tax collector one of his disciples. For Jewish people, dealing with a tax collector, a Jewish tax collector, was like bad. First of all, they ripped people off. And second of all, they were dealing with Gentiles. They weren't allowed in the temple to worship on Sabbath. And Jesus calls one of them to be his disciples. That would have been, what are you doing? <laughs> would have been one of those things from, from the people. That's what you see going on. You, see, you also see Jesus goes to a house party, hangs out with the riffraff. And in the, my version, it's the, the religious leaders come to Jesus' disciples and go, what is your teacher hanging out with such scum? That's the word that's used, right? He also breaks the Sabbath law, right? Like, so you look at it and you go, wow, Jesus, you're going right off the rails or whatever that is, right? But this is what you see. And what this is, is it's the set up to the sermon that's taking place. It's the setup. So let me read you just a portion from Luke 5. I just want you to hear it. If you you need to close your eyes so you're not distracted and you need to get off your phone, get off your phone. (laughs) This is what it says in Luke 5. This is just one of the little things. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi, brackets, Matthew, who wrote the gospel. (laughs) He saw Levi sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything and followed him. And later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor, and many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with him. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with such scum? And Jesus answered them, well, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And I have come to call not those who think they are righteous. You can see the little jab there from Jesus. But those who know they are sinners and need to repent. And then if you start in the midway point of Matthew's gospel, this is what Matthew records. It says this, From then on Jesus began to preach, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria. And people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. This is what Matthew's writing. This is what he's observing. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, and from all over Judea, and from east of the Jordan River. From there, Matthew segues right into his sermon. So you've heard this. You've seen this, what's going on. 
And the sermon says, starts off with this. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down, and his disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they're going to be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they'll be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad. In Luke's gospel, it says that Jesus says, leap for joy. (laughs) For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. That takes on a whole different flavor when you have that set up the backstory. Jesus is just, you know how you see in some movies, they'll show things like, you know, some rich person has thrown all this money out in this, from a big apartment building and it all flutters down and people are running. It feels like Jesus is just throwing the kingdom out like, <laughs> like that, eh? just like giving everything away. The thought came to me last week was, I don't know if Jesus read boundaries. He just seems to just, He's just like, well, we sang it today, reckless love, right? And it's not really reckless. I think the way we love is reckless, actually. Think that. What's happened here? This is what's happened. The kingdom has arrived. Jesus not only demonstrated it with healing different people, calling people who you would never think calling, spoke on it. His teaching was like, God blesses those. God, like, it's almost like, who don't you bless, Jesus? <laughs> Anybody and everybody he blesses, right? But did you notice what the Beatitudes, we call these the Beatitudes, and Beatitude, by the way, that word means supreme blessing, this crazy type of blessing where it just everything gets blessed, right? But did you notice this, that the kingdom... One of the things that Beatitudes reveals is that the kingdom brings peace to the heart. Shalom. There's a shalom that's given to people who are suffering, right? In the Beatitudes, you see the kingdom is on the side of suffering. You see God is present in the midst of pain and hurt. God is present there with people, right? And I hope you see what Jesus is up to. What's going on here is he's trying to pull us away from the futility of thinking that if I can control the outward circumstances that are occurring in my life, then I will have peace here. Because that's what we do. That's what I do. I want to control things. Parents get frustrated with their kids because they can't control them, right? And if they could only control them, if they could only behave we would have peace in our home, right? But we go about that with everything in life. If only my boss could be nicer, 
I would have peace in my heart. If I had more money, if I had a bigger house, if I had this, if I had that, right, I'd have peace. And we'd search, we'd look for this, and we don't find it. And Jesus, you know, he just pours out his blessing. But you see from the Beatitudes, there's this thing of, I give you peace to your heart, right? I know for myself, I inwardly, it's automatically, I want to try to control things so I can have peace. And that's not where peace comes from, right? Because here's the thing, it's not the outward circumstances that need to change, it's the inward condition of my heart. And Jesus is saying to those who are persecuted, to those who are mourning, to those who are poor, to those who are just walking in pain, to different people who struggle with things, I got peace for you, for your heart. And actually, everybody needs that, right? We need that. It's something about that when peace is, when I find when peace is here, when I'm at peace in here, when I bring Jesus in to come, be, be peace to my heart. The things that happen out there that I can't control anyway, for whatever reason, I don't know why I buy into, or buy into this thought that I can control things, because you can't. <laughs> you think you can, you can't, right? But I find when I find, when I have peace in here, those things don't seem to have as much power over me. Not as much. That lessens. It's like, whatever, you know? Not that big of a deal. The reason we have road rage is because people want to control how their traffic commute goes. And when it doesn't go that way, <laughs> we get frustrated. <laughs> and everybody is stupid except for the... You, right? I'm not stupid. I'm a good driver, right? But everybody else, clearly, right? Well, here's the thing about the Beatitudes. Um, They are not a way to be to enter the kingdom. Don't read them as that. That's not what Jesus is implying at all. It's not, we don't have to be a certain way. It's not, we don't have to attain it. It's not a badge of honor we wear, right? It's not, it's not something that we deserve, that we, you know, we earn or deserve. Because if we go down this road, we risk, and Dallas Willard points this out in our book, that if we go down this road, that it's something we need to attain, we risk taking what was intended for, as grace, and we flip that into a law. It becomes law now. Now, if I can get this, then I'll have God's favor, God's blessing. I'll enter God's kingdom. And that's not it at all because it's Jesus who brings the kingdom to us. We don't have to earn it to try and get it. It does sound preposterous, but that's exactly what Jesus is communicating, right? The other thing, and Willard points this out in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, they are not steps into the kingdom. Dallas Willard makes an interesting observation. And he says this, he says that we'll trip and fall if we, if we think we have to attain one or all of these different things that Jesus points out. Because Dallas says, what about the people who don't make the list? I thought, well, who wouldn't make the list? And, and Willard points out that, that we all know people who are pleasing to God and they love God, but they're they're not poor, they're not hungry, they're not mourning, they're not persecuted, they love their neighbor, they love God with all their heart. 
So he, he says, step away. Well, all he's saying is you got to step away from seeing these as steps into the kingdom. They're not. Because what you see in the backstory and what you see in the Beatitudes there is this. The kingdom is open to all. Whoever wants to can come and follow. Jesus doesn't put up a, you, you got to clean up your act and then we'll go through the criteria. And if you meet it, then you'll come. Because Jesus just does doesn't, doesn't work that way. That's not how love works. And that's what the kingdom is all about. It's this passionate love of God. There used to be a saying in the vineyard, maybe still is in some of the vineyards, but it was, come as you are, you'll be loved. You'd see it up on the wall or that. But they meant it. <laughs> now, if you came from a traditional conservative church where April and I came from, we saw that. And when we walked in, it was like, oh, they mean that, <laughs> right? Because we looked at the people and the way they were dressed and stuff, and it was like, that's not how we dressed. We put a suit on. I put a suit on and a tie. And <laughs> like, are these people really Christians? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Well, that's sort of what it was like. But that statement comes from the desire, came from the desire to reflect this uber-generous kingdom that it's open to all. Like, come and follow. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good, that Jesus is good. That's what the message was. That's why there are so many people who are coming from churches like ours would sit in the service and weep, <laughs> right? It was wonderful. But it was bizarre, but it was wonderful, though. <laughs> so whatever the point of the Beatitudes is, it cannot be that they state the conditions that guarantee God's approval or salvation or blessing. Right? They're not that. And I, I wish I could have said it better or as well as Dallas says it, but I'm going to read to you a quote from his book. And he says this. He says, quote, in general, many of those thought blessed or first in human terms are miserable or last in God's terms. And many of those regarded as cursed or last in human terms may well be blessed as first in God's terms as they rely on the kingdom of Jesus. And he goes on to say that the Beatitudes are a list of human last who at the individualized touch of the heavens become divine first. The gospel of the kingdom is that no one is beyond beatitude. No one is beyond supreme blessing. There's nobody. We see it in the testimonies every week. We hear people going and what, what they've encountered, right? Everyone can reach it, he says, the gospel of the kingdom is that no one is beyond beatitude because the rule of God from the heavens is available to all. Everyone can reach it, and it can reach everyone. We respond appropriately to the beatitudes of Jesus by living as if this was so, as it concerns others and as it concerns ourselves. That's the hook, right? That's the thing right there. When we read the, the Sermon on the Mount, do we read it? As if it was so, as if that is true, what Jesus is saying. 
And I believe Jesus is calling the church, and as always for the last 2,000 years, take my words seriously. Take them seriously. You know what the reality is? All through the Old Testament, you see smatterings of this uber generosity of God's love and heart for people. All through it, it's there. And I don't know what it is about human beings, but even in, my, in myself, I want to go, you know, Jesus, I think maybe you're being a little too generous. Just a little bit. And you go down that road, you better be wearing a crash helmet. You're going down that one. <laughs> you're in for a weapon. And I'll explain why. But one of the amazing passages in the Old Testament is when God spoke through his prophet Isaiah and said these words in Isaiah. Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money. Come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Doesn't that have a similar ring to what Jesus was doing before he brought the sermon? It has that same tone, right? It's free. Just give, give, give this away. If you have no money, come. Take your choice of wine or milk, right? Continues. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me. And you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Guys, listen. As we go into the sermon, Jesus is offering the finest foods. And his question to us is why will we choose to continue living the way we're living, which Jesus would say is junk food, is doing no good for you. It's lousy. It's tasteless. I got the best food. What are you doing? Right? It's like Jesus saying, you can go to Langdon Hall and eat, but I see you eating over at this other joint. What are you doing? You need to taste my food, right? That's what you see going on here. And then, of course, these words right after that, come to me with your ears wide open, listen, and you will find life. That's the invitation. The invitation of Jesus' sermon is, I'm offering you life. I'm offering you life. It's what the call is. I'm offering you life. Now the reason I said, you know, there's something about us, some, me. I don't want to say us because I don't want to drop, do a blanket thing. But there's something about me that does want to go, you may be just... You need to restrain yourself a bit, Jesus. Because you just go overboard a bit. And there's danger about that. People may take advantage of you. They may do that, you know. You realize that. <laughs> and I know, I've come to understand what, when God is speaking to me, that still small voice, and I hear that still small voice say to me, you only say that because somehow you think you've arrived and you're good. You've already established that you're good. And therefore, everybody else needs to meet that standard. And I hear God saying, Scott, you need to realize something. I'm speaking to you when I speak those Beatitudes. I see your heart. 
I know your struggles. I know what you're going through. And I have come to give you a life that's way better. And it takes me to come down and go, I get it, Lord. Because that whole thing of, think, of even saying, even thinking, you could be being a little too generous, Jesus. I am also saying there are people that don't deserve that. And love doesn't go by deserving. That's not love. What parent goes, oh, I'm not sure if this child deserves my love. No healthy parent does that. When I think of my mom and dad, I've never thought I'm not worthy of their love. Worthy doesn't become, isn't part of the language of love, is it? I don't think it is. Love loves. Love just loves. There's no worthy. It's not worthy or unworthy. God just loves humanity. And yeah, it does seem preposterous. Get used to it. Welcome. As we go through the sermon, you're going to want to go. I'm not sure we should be going that far. Yeah, farther, probably. Farther, probably. The kingdom, for those who are listening or watching, the kingdom is open for you. It's open. And Jesus says, just come follow. For us who are here, Jesus says to all of us, come follow. Take, eat of the finest foods. I give you life. That's what Jesus is saying. Why would we not choose it? Eh? Why would we not? Why would we not? We, we serve a beautiful God. I'm go- let me just close right now. Father, Lord, what can we say? Never have we known such love as this. Never. Father, my prayer is that we don't have to have it figured out. It doesn't have to make sense to us. God, you are sense. You are right. You are life. You get to define the kingdom, not us. You get to define what love is, not us. Lord, we just want wherever it is you're taking us. We want you. We want your life. We see the food you've prepared for us and set before us. Help us in our wants that we want what brings life to us. I pray right now, Jesus, you would speak to people who think they're not worthy of your love or they don't deserve your love. And Jesus, they deserve your love. You long to love them. And Jesus says, come, follow me. So, Father, I just thank you. I thank you for what you do. I thank you for who you are. Jesus, we acknowledge that you are the giver of life. You're the author of life. You're the perfecter of our faith. As Paul says, Lord, we forget what's behind. We look at what's ahead, and we focus on that. We fix our eyes on you, Jesus. You are the one who has life. We seek you. So, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come right now. Just come and minister to us.